are listening to The Truth Tank, and I'm your host, The Tank. This is episode 32 of The Truth Tank, and it is the second part to a history of bioweapons. On tonight's show, we're going to be having a look at bioweapons and their use during the 1800s, specifically the American Civil War. We're going to be looking at how the North and South both use differing forms of biological warfare against one another. There's no good guys or bad guys in this tale. Everyone lives in the shade of grey. Both sides were using biological components against one another. The South used the natural occurring diseases they already had against the North. And the North restricted the access to vaccines and drugs that would have prevented a lot of Southerners from suffering from a lot of disease outbreaks that happened during the American Civil War. So before we get into tonight's show, just a quick recap of the last episode. We had a look at biological warfare, its use and development by governments and the military throughout modern times and throughout the past, starting from about the 1500s, going down to the 1800s. We also covered the Biological Warfare Convention, which is a global pact to prevent biological weapons from being developed, stockpiled, or researched. We also had a look at lab escapes and human error. This is a huge cause of biological outbreaks all over the world, and it has been for a long time. From there, we looked at the use of biological weapons from the 1500s onwards, and the use of smallpox as a weapon during European colonization. So without further ado, let's waste no more time. Let's get into tonight's show. This is episode 32 of The Truth Tank, A History of Bioweapons, Part 2. Much like the previous centuries, the 1800s weren't too different. Biological weapons were still a cruel and effective tool in warfare. The big difference with biological warfare during the 1800s, it was becoming more lethal, sophisticated and cunning. So on tonight's show, we're going to be covering the 1800s. Not a lot happens in the 1800s besides the American Civil War. Biological weapons were used plentifully in the American Civil War, and we'll get into that a little later on. The biggest difference in the 1800s as opposed to previous centuries was that technology and the understanding of how viruses and diseases worked was changing. Humans were starting to understand and were starting to study how they worked on a scientific level. This also marked the first time in history that those in power could now pick and choose bioagents that could be studied and used in warfare. Unlike the previous centuries where you had to go out and find diseases or biological components to use in warfare. The 1800s, you could more or less pick and choose which ones you wanted to release because you had medical and scientific departments who were who housed these viruses to be used. The more scientists found out and understood how viruses and biological agents worked, the easier it became to manipulate them. The newly formed field of microbiology changed the biological warfare game. Microbiology was obviously set up for medical uses and to study how diseases and viruses and bacteria worked. That didn't prevent the powers that be from turning that into a, into something evil and in, basically into a weapon of war. The mentality of the day didn't help, nor did the morality. The powers that be didn't share the same respect for human life that we do today. And on the last episode, we looked at the very turbulent history of colonization and the spreading of diseases. Some say that it was done deliberately, others say it was an accident. Either could be true. Diseases like smallpox have been around for a long time and they have seemed to pop up in indigenous communities throughout history. So it's very hard to tell if 
you know, smallpox was spread by British colonization, or if it was something that naturally occurred, it was a, like a natural occurring cycle that happened you know, every couple of hundred years or so. There weren't many biological weapons used during the 1800s at all, as opposed to previous eras. Colonization was done and dusted at this point. Those spreading diseases to wipe out indigenous populations had pretty much done that. And some parts of the world were becoming more civilized and more industrialized. And this is a pretty key thing. Industrialization pretty much changes the landscape of biological warfare. War had changed to how it had been fought in the past, and biological warfare needed to change and adapt to modern warfare and the use of technology. It also spurred medical advancements such as vaccines and antidotes that hadn't previously been seen in other, in other centuries. A lot of the old ways biological warfare was used had been made redundant, like, like flinging corpses over city walls in the hopes that they would spread disease, filling up clay pots with tarantula venom and saliva from rabies-infected dogs. The time for those type of weapons had passed. So with the change in warfare, the effectiveness of bioweapons had also changed. The vaccines came out. Some viruses and diseases that were spread during warfare just weren't as effective as they used to be. Smallpox was still dangerous, but by this point, there was a vaccine for it. In 1796, the first smallpox vaccine comes out and pretty much makes the spread of smallpox as an eradication tool pretty ineffective to how it had been during the 1500s where Cortes spread smallpox right throughout Mexico. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit here. This isn't really biological warfare related, but it does show how diseases can spread to indigenous communities. So in 1875, measles decimated Fiji. Although it wasn't through a deliberate spreading, like smallpox had been in previous years during colonization, this was more or less an accidental spreading. It's not quite biological warfare, but an inadvertent spread of biological agents. And if you do want to get conspiratorial, you could also look at it as maybe this is like Western governments trying to wipe, her, wipe out or eradicate Polynesian peoples by accidentally spreading diseases. So conflict among different tribes led to Fijian chieftains signing an article of cession. The most senior of tribal chieftains, Kakabai, travelled to Sydney to sign a deal which would make them a protectorate of the British Empire. Unfortunately, this is where he and his son contract measles in December of 1874. On his return in January 1875, his son fell ill during the 19-day trip back to Fiji. When they reached home, Kakabai and his crew were greeted by all the chieftains and VIPs on the island. The chieftains and leaders all met to discuss the terms of the new arrangement. Little did they realize they were actually being affected by measles. After the meeting, they all returned home to their various parts of the island, inadvertently spreading disease to all corners of Fiji. From February to June, measles ravaged Fiji, killing anywhere between one-fifth to one-fourth of the population. Records are a little shaky, as there wasn't much record-keeping going on back then, and due to so many of the chieftains being infected, which, as a result, a lot of them died from measles, created a power and leadership vacuum throughout Fiji. A similar set of circumstances happened in Hawaii and throughout the Polynesian Islands. But this isn't really a bioweapon, it's more of an accidental spreading this brings us to the American Civil War. The American Civil War is one of the biggest examples of the use of biological warfare in the 1800s. No other conflict before the Civil War used biological warfare to the ends that the North and the South did against one another. The 1800s had been pretty quiet on the biological warfare front, and it's not really until about 1862 to 1863 that things really start to heat up. 
It's also the biggest standout of biological weapon use in all of the 1800s. So during the American Civil War, Confederates tried an old and tested form of biological warfare, but they put an elaborate modern spin on it in an attempt to gain the upper hand in the war. A man by the name of R.R. Sparrow came up with a diabolical plan of shipping the corpses and clothing of yellow fever patients to Union troops in New Orleans, which at the time was under Union control. This is a pretty sick idea, and it's a reoccurring tactic by Confederate forces to gain the upper hand over the North. It also shows a complete difference in the mindset when viewing the enemy. It makes you wonder, given how easy it is for things to go wrong when dealing with biological agents, the chances of infecting your own troops is probably pretty high, especially given the lack of medical and scientific knowledge of the day. Also, people were disgusting back then. No one washed. You'd go days without washing your fucking hands, which would have made spreading diseases and germs a hell of a lot easier. There's no records from the day that indicate if Sparrow's plan ever worked or even saw the light of day. It more than likely was just an idea and remained that way. But it does show where the mindset of the time was. Conditions of the day would have been pretty horrific. It wouldn't have been that hard to spread disease. Hospital conditions would have been atrocious. I mean, more people died from infections, from wounds, than contact in battle. If you were wounded in battle and you didn't get medical treatment, the chances of you dying from an infected wound were a hell of a lot higher than getting hit by a bullet on a battlefield. In fact, twice as many soldiers died of disease and infection than they did from gunshots. If you were lucky enough to get wounded in battle and survive, you still had to survive the surgery and the infection stage of post-surgery, which is still a big concern today with our modern technology and medical knowledge. And this is a time where dirt and germs were everywhere, a field hospital was pretty dirty and germ-infested. Sepsis is one of the biggest killers of the modern day, or any day, and it was rife during the Civil War. I mean, sepsis is a huge killer to even today. It kills more people than the flu does every year, but, you know, we don't have lockdowns against sepsis, do we? I've had it a couple of years ago, and it was fucking horrific. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And the worst thing about it is that it can happen in clean environments or dirty environments. So then there's the rats and the insects that are helping to spread diseases across battlefields. And if you get past the rats and the disease-spreading insects, there's still the cleanliness of the field hospital and the tools and instruments used by the doctors. Nothing was cleaned or cleaned properly back then. The knowledge of germs and bacteria was still in its infancy. So cleaning tools and washing hands properly or sterilizing utensils before operating on someone more than likely wasn't the first thing being thought of especially when the doctors are in the middle of a war and overwhelmed with injured men. Back then, like today, there wasn't enough doctors to go around. You had to triage on the battlefield. And I guarantee you the doctor wasn't changing utensils over back then, if they even had them at all. They probably only had a couple of sets. And he sure as hell wasn't washing his hands in between patients. And he wasn't definitely wasn't wearing gloves. Especially not the uh, rubber powder-coated gloves that we take for granted today. And that's also combined with a very primitive form of surgery, a hack and saw surgery. If you got a bullet in the leg and the doctor couldn't save it, well, guess what? You got the bone saw and you hacked it off. The saw more than likely didn't get washed between amputations from one person to another. It probably just sat back on the shelf, dried a little bit, then they used it to hack someone's arm off. They might have gone and washed it outside with whatever dirty, soiled water was lying around in a medical pan. That probably had uh, you know half a dozen instruments lying in it, washing the blood off of it. Gets washed in dirty water, only to get reused. 
And when they did eventually change the water, it was probably river water from whatever water source was close by and was probably pretty dirty. The understanding of germs and bacteria and how they worked was a relatively new field of study. And as it turned out, both Union and Confederate leadership understood the potential biological elements could play in war. It's not like there wasn't enough germs and disease around the place, especially in the South. To coincide with the turmoil of the war and to make things more difficult, there was an outbreak of malaria on the loose right throughout the Deep South. All this coincided with a major event around the start of the war that makes life in the South even harder. And that was the Union blockade. So obviously this was done to restrict the amount of supplies coming into the South from domestic supplies and from overseas. But there was a more sinister reason for restricting supply chains, and that was to help the spread of malaria and diseases to Southerners by Northern leadership. Whether this was the original intention or just an invert consequence of the blockade is still up for debate. In all reality, this was more than likely a strategy that had been considered. Both sides had a similar mindset when it came to biological weapons, so why wouldn't Union decision makers use a very cunning form of a biological weapon to halt the enemy? In 1861, President Abraham Lincoln announced the Union Blockade, also known as the Anaconda Plan. The blockade was a US naval strategy that more or less was designed to prevent or significantly restrict the trade and importing abilities of the Confederacy. I mean, on the one hand, yes, this is a war. On the other hand, this is also very cruel. The Southerners had families in the North and Northerners had families in the South. Restricting importing abilities would have had a very drastic effect on the civilian population. It wasn't just war contraband or war supplies they were stopping. It was also civilian and domestic supplies such as medicine, clothing and food. It was a cruel strategy but ultimately it proved effective. And as a consequence of the blockade, the Confederates start to think outside the box and look at biological warfare as a way of fighting back. So in other words they're fighting fire with fire. The North used biological warfare against the South, and guess what? The South uses it right back. All's fair in love and war. Confederate leadership thought that was a pretty fair strategy. The North had no qualms about the knock-on effects of the blockade, which was death by disease, through lack of supplies, such as medicines. And I'm pretty sure the Northern leadership knew what they were doing, and as we'll find out later on in the show, there's a very sinister plan by the North that is behind the blockade and it is one that ultimately dominates most of the Civil War. So the Anaconda Plan was brought forth by General-in-Chief Winfield Scott. They refer to the plan as an Anaconda Plan because the North saw it as a gigantic anaconda suffocating the South. If you were living in the South, this is pretty much how it would have felt. A gigantic Northern snake encompassing the South and suffocating it of supplies and resources. So Scott's vision was meant to be a passive strategy, one in which Union forces would advance down the Mississippi River, effectively splitting the South in two. It's the old divide-and-conquer tactic, i.e. He, he controls the rivers and ports on either side of the divide line, and it makes it easier to control the Gulf and the Atlantic ports, or something along those lines. That was the theory anyway, that was the theory on paper, Union generals criticised Scott's plan for being weak, and rightfully so. As I mentioned, it was a, is a good plan in theory, but in practicality, it probably wasn't the best strategy. The name also sticks because it, when you think about it, it's pretty much a snake suffocating its victim slowly. 
It wasn't a quick strategy by any means. This is a strategy that got drawn out over years and years. So Scott hoped his plan would get Confederate states to come to the table and agree to terms before all-out war. He hoped for the least bloody outcome than other proposed plans, such as a full invasion of the South or you know, a naval, an aggressive naval strategy up the coast and along the rivers. Scott hoped the violence would be contained down the Mississippi, but what Scott didn't predict is that the blockade, as it turned out, caused a large amount of bloodshed that was to come. The blockade sparked and provoked violent backlashes. The backlashes that it sought to stop also meant that the plan needed to be modified. He pretty much doesn't take into account how many troops would be needed to patrol the over 3,000 miles of you know, ports and rivers and country. Allocation of resources also wasn't factored into his plan. The North at the time just didn't have the ships or the resources to commit to such a large area that needed to be patrolled. There was also no timeline to go by. There was no start or end date to this operation. It was just, let's go down the Mississippi and divide and conquer and see how it goes. Hopefully that will come to the table quicker rather than later. But this is not what happens. And this is also why a lot of Union generals criticize Scott's plan. It's a very loose plan that appears good on paper. There's a lot of factors that he didn't consider before making this plan. And one of the crucial errors he makes is there were no targets, such as ports, to take first. He just seemingly wants to send everybody down there and patrol random ports. A smarter plan would have been to take out the key ports first, and then control some of the smaller ones, hitting the larger ones and then working your way inward. Once again, this isn't taken into account. That all came later, with the Blockade Strategy Board in the summer of 1861. The Blockade Strategy Board gave recommendations to maintain the blockade and worked out a lot of the finer details that Scott overlooked. Now I get why Scott came up with this plan, is he obviously seems like a very empathetic character. He doesn't want bloodshed, he doesn't want people to die unnecessarily. He is generally thinking of preserving human life and not just a all-out war like some of the other Union generals were thinking. And ultimately, this is not how the war ends up playing out, but it's that old saying, some of the worst things imaginable are done with the best intentions. I think Scott's intentions were pure, but the reality just wasn't thought through enough. So on a logistical scale, the blockade was a mammoth undertaking. It sounded intimidating on paper, but the reality wasn't as practical. The blockade consisted of patrolling 12 major southern ports, 3,500 miles of the Atlantic Gulf coastline, and an endless amount of rivers, tributaries, and backroads pointing in every direction all throughout the south. In order to do this, the Union had around about 500 ships commissioned to do the job. At the time of the plan, they didn't have the ships available, and they had to commission or build them, which meant requesting ships into naval service. This could be like fishing boats, civilian vessels, whatever. Anything to make up the number. But obviously, they would have had to have been a certain size and standard and being outfitted with weapons. Otherwise, what's the point in patrolling? Because you'd probably get the shit kicked out of you by, by southern ships. The Union also couldn't make the ships fast enough. They also needed to import a lot of resources to be able to do the job. But one of the biggest problems is they needed to recruit and train personnel. They needed personnel trained in blockade warfare, patrolling, and military tactics before any of this could begin. This is a pretty huge logistical undertaking. 
And this is also overlooked by Scott's original plan. You can't just click your fingers and make this shit happen. To counter the blockade, the South came up with their own plan, and that was blockade runners. Blockade runners were fast, maneuverable, and lighter vessels that could outrun the larger, more heavily armoured Union patrol boats. So there are a couple of pros and cons to being a blockade runner. This also came at a cost. Blockade runner ships were usually faster and stealthier than the larger, heavier Union ships, but a few of the trade-offs, they were lighter armed, so taking on a patrol vessel head-to-head was probably a pretty bad idea. The smaller size also came at a cost of cargo space. Small ship, less cargo you could carry. This is a big issue when there are a lot of sick and starving people depending on those supplies. It also drives up the prices of goods, i.e. the knock-on effects of war such as price fixing, price hikes, scarcity of goods like medicine, food and clothing. But it also has an effect on the military. This also means you can't get weapons and ammo and supplies to the troops when they need it. And this would all have a pretty drastic effect on the South's war effort. On the other side of that, one can make a pretty decent living, especially during dire situations like a blockade. Now the old Latin translation of chaos means opportunity, and there's a lot of Southerners who are capitalising on the blockade. If you were ambitious enough and you seize the opportunity, you can make a pretty decent living out of the blockade, if you had the balls to do it. Being a blockade runner was a very risky business to be in, but the economic profits could be worth the risk. If you were spotted by a patrol boat, the new union would have no hesitation firing upon you or pursuing you, either to the point where the vessel was either captured or destroyed and the crew captured or killed. So the other way to profit was militarily. A successful trip could prove to be worth more than money on the battlefield. And this is a luxury that southern leadership would pay for. You cannot have an army out in the field fighting if there are no supplies or weapons. You can't exactly throw sticks and stones at the Union troops. That's not probably going to stop them. You need muskets and you need ammunition. You also need cannons, food, supplies and everything else that comes with life in the military during the 1800s. A successful trip could prove to be worth more than money on the battlefield, especially when arming and resupplying Confederate troops. With everything, there are knock-on effects, like bringing medicine to sick people. The more people who are fit and healthy means there's more people to produce goods and services. The more factories that are operating and are staffed by healthy workers means you can produce more stuff. And this is at a time where literally producing every item of clothing, every piece of food, and every bullet or bomb is essential to the South pushing back against the North. So the other thing about blockade runners is that the crews were usually pretty good. It was a very high-risk scenario, which meant you had to have a decent crew. You had to have people who knew what they were doing, preferably a crew that could handle a ship at high speed and, and maybe had experience avoiding blockades previously or outrunning other ships. I'd go out on a limb and say that you probably needed some weapons experience. The more of your crew that could shoot properly, the better chances your survival were. You also would need them to keep their mouth shut and be able to work pretty fast. A lot of the crews, as it turned out, were run by the Navy, or had ships and crews that were from the Navy, and that were basically used to avoid the blockades. So obviously ships would have been in scarce supply, and the Navy probably had a couple that obviously couldn't do much against the Union blockades. They, they were outnumbered and outmanned and outgunned. 
So why not use them to try and smuggle goods back into the south? It's a win-win. You have the ships, you have the crew sitting there doing nothing. You might as well put them to good use. You don't have to also worry about training the crew too much because they're already at a significant level of competency. You would have been able to put the crews on any ship and they would have known what they're doing straight away. You wouldn't have had to go through too much training, I would imagine. Same goes for repurposing and probably repainting the Navy ships. Obviously, you don't want to get caught by the Union. Running a Southern Navy ship, you would have probably had to, to disguise it like a civilian vessel. So blockade runner is a pretty cool word. It invokes a bygone era, but also science fiction at the same time. Blockade runners were used in other wars, mainly by Germany in World War One and Two. So as things went on and the war progressed, forts and ports were taken over by Union forces. One of the minor forts that was taken over in the south was near Cape Hatteras. If you remember back to last year, that plays a very important part in the Lost Colony of Roanoke. If you haven't listened to that episode, why don't you go ahead and download that? It's pretty good. So blockade running had to operate out of foreign ports. A lot of the ships weren't based in the south because obviously it was too dangerous and you would probably have been caught by the Union. So they had to make do with foreign ports. Some of the ports included Bermuda, Nassau or Havana. Obviously Nassau is a famous pirate port from a couple hundred years before. This is neutral territory. The Union couldn't touch you over there. It also provided a safe port where you could access a lot more supplies. The problem wouldn't have been getting the supplies on the ships and out of the foreign ports. It would have been crossing back over to the south and avoiding the Union patrols. So as I mentioned before, the Union never had the ships available for the blockade. The North had 500 ships built for the purposes of the blockade. Over the course of the war, the blockade had the desired effect. Casualties were pretty low compared to casualties of war on the battlefield. But the economy was devastated and the lack of of a reliable supply chain had a drastic toll on southern forces. Especially in the last two years of the war, the south was pretty much bled dry by the north, largely due to the success of the northern blockade. The blockade worked, and had the desired effect that Union planners had hoped. So back to the mastermind of the south's biological weapon plan. In 1863, a southern sympathizer named Dr. Luke Blackburn came up with an evil and maybe genius plan to spread yellow fever to Union troops. His plan involved selling clothing worn by yellow fever patients to northern states. I mean, what the fuck? So this guy's a doctor. So what happened to helping the sick, not creating the sick? There's a little bit of a conflict of interest going on with this guy. And as we'll see over the course of the podcast, this guy is one of the most interesting characters, I think, of the Civil War. He's a very interesting case study in human psychology. This guy is a doctor who is treating the sick and trying to create them all at the same time. He's a very interesting character. So let's have a deeper look at Dr. Blackburn. So Dr. Blackburn moved to Mississippi after completing his medical degree. As it turns out, Dr. Blackburn's claim to fame was the first successful yellow fever quarantine in the Mississippi River during an outbreak in 1848. This guy was smart. He was no slouch. He understood quarantine before there was a standardized quarantine practice in place, and he was ahead of his time in a medical sense. You could say that he wasn't 100% evil, 
but at the same time, he's not 100% not evil. The way this guy thinks, I found really fascinating. I, I really can't make head to tail of him. In one breath, he wants to help, but if you're on the other side of that borderline, he wants to kill you and wants to spread death, disease, and mayhem. He's an odd character, to say the least. For further proof that this guy isn't 100% psychopath and he does generally have a I think a good heart deep down it might be wrapped in layers of black evilness but I think deep down he really did want to help so to further prove that point he would often work for free he would work pro bono and was considered the leading authority of yellow fever he was also a philanthropist he used his own money to construct a hospital for boatmen working along the Mississippi River he even lobbied Congress to build a series of smaller hospitals along the Mississippi River to help boatmen and people who worked on the river, mainly wharf and dock workers and their families. So as I mentioned, Dr. Blackburn is a very interesting guy. He seems to be a very unselfish person and someone who is not motiv- motivated by money, which in today's sense is very rare for a doctor not to be motivated by money over helping the sick. So Blackburn doesn't seem to be one of those doctors who is motivated by financial gain. But at the same time, he obviously has a lot of money. He, he builds hospitals with his own funds, so he's obviously not short of a dollar. He's also somewhat of a businessman. I think he's a more successful doctor than he is entrepreneur. He lost a lot of money in a rope hemp investment. And just to add a little touch of incest, he also marries a distant cousin. So this guy is a very multi-dimensional character. He's helping people, he's marrying his cousin, he's losing money in business deals, and he's building hospitals. So there's not a lot of rhyme or reason with Dr. Blackburn. So by the time the war started in 1861, Blackburn was way too old to serve in the army or in the military. So he decided to serve the South the best way he knew how. So you could call him a Confederate sympathizer. He obviously supported the Confederacy in a civilian capacity. One of his first roles was to act as an envoy for the governor of Kentucky in a failed bid to acquire weapons from Louisiana to defend Kentucky. So in 1862, he went back to what he was good at. Uh, He was assigned to Major General Sterling Price's staff as a surgeon. The following year, in 1863, Blackburn was appointed as one of two commissioners that oversaw the care of wounded Confederate soldiers. He also gathered medical supplies, which at the time wouldn't have been easy to come by, with the blockade being in full swing by 63. From there, he travels to Richmond and meets with Confederate Secretary of War James Seddon, and going back to his philanthropic roots, he offers his services as inspector of hospitals and hospital camps, free of charge and without a title. So he's showing us once again he's a man of the people. This is a guy that clearly wants to help his fellow man. He seems completely determined to help southern troops and southerners any way he can. And his superpower is obviously his ability to deal with infectious disease outbreaks and his skill as a doctor. Despite his generous offer, it was refused. But there is no good reason as to why it was refused. And this leads him down the biological weapons path. He is asked by Governor of Mississippi, John J. Pettis, to travel to Canada and help acquire supplies from a blockade runner stationed there. From there, he accompanied a crew of blockade runners, taking a shipment of ice down to Mobile, Alabama. Things didn't go to plan, and the ship was intercepted by the Union Navy. 
after Union forces had secured the ship and arrested all the crew. Blackburn was let go and returned back to Canada. He was thought to be a civilian passenger hitching a ride down south. So he's also a very lucky, half-evil, half-good doctor. So here's when Blackburn's story starts to divert into Crazy Town. In April of 1864, yellow fever breaks out in Bermuda, which was at the time a major port and base of operations for Confederate blockade runners. The outbreak was severe enough that it threatened the Confederate operation. Yellow fever was spreading and turned into a full-blown epidemic before long. The governor of the United Provinces of Canada asked Blackburn to help. So he heads down to Bermuda to help Confederate personnel and the civilians of Bermuda. So this is him once again being completely selfless and helping those in need. He travels back and forth between Canada and Bermuda over the course of the next year, before the outbreak was brought under control in October. For his services, he was given 100 British pounds and a commendation by Queen Victoria herself. So it was during the pandemic he comes up with the yellow fever plot. His movements in Canada are pretty much a mystery. He doesn't let on to what he is planning. Blackburn definitely keeps his cards close to his chest and doesn't leave a very big trail behind him. There is not a lot of irrefutable evidence connecting him back to anything 100%. He is pretty much Teflon and not a lot sticks to him. You could bet money on it that he's the guy that was responsible for the yellow fever plot but there isn't enough irrefutable evidence pointing his way. There are a few rumours that he was playing a large insurrection in New England that would serve as a distraction, all the while another Confederate agent connected to the plan by the name of Thomas Hines would lead the attack on prison camp Douglas all the way in Chicago. So this is obviously a prison break attempt designed to break out Confederate troops out of a Union prison and get them back to the south. So unfortunately for Blackburn, word gets around of the alleged plan and the Union sends reinforcements up to Boston, the apparent target of Blackburn's plan. The plan is stopped before it can begin. So maybe this, in reality, was the real diversion. Maybe there was no plan, maybe it was all made up just to send Union troops into a different location. Maybe there was a more secretive plan in the works. A plan that no one knows about and one that was never really recorded by history. I think there's a bit more going on behind the scenes than has been recorded. Blackburn doesn't seem like a guy that makes too many mistakes. And this would be a very big one to make. Now we enter the Yellow Fever plot and the assassination of one President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. So Yellow Fever is also referred to as Yellow Jack. It derives its name from the yellow flags raised by quarantine ships in ports. If you had a yellow flag on a ship, don't go near it. There's a lot of sick people quarantining on the ship, or like as we've all too familiar with this day and age, quarantining in isolation so you don't spread a disease you may or may not have. This is pretty much the olden day version of that. People who are coming into a country obviously arrived by a ship, if there was an outbreak on the ship or if there was some sickness, you would quarantine for 30 days on the ship just off of port. It is now April of 1865, a year after Blackburn had travelled to Bermuda to assist with the yellow fever outbreak. It is a couple of days after the Battle of the Appomattox Courthouse, one of the final battles of the Civil War. A man named Godfrey Joseph Hyams, a double agent who had been working for the Union 
by infiltrating the Confederates, came forward to the U.S. Consul in Toronto. He walked into the Consul with some very interesting information that he would exchange for payment and immunity from prosecution. Sir Godfrey claims that Dr. Blackburn had been plotting to infect northern cities with yellow fever. The plan involved Mr. Himes smuggling travel trunks full of clothing and bedding worn or used by yellow fever patients. Himes would smuggle them into popular northern cities. He was meant to take trunks to Boston, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., and any other Union-controlled southern cities, such as New Bern, North Carolina, or Norfolk, Virginia, whereby he would sell the trunks and their contents to local clothing merchants and stores, in the hopes that unsuspecting shoppers looking for a second pair of pants, some new bedsheets, or a new shirt would buy them and then become sick with yellow fever, consequently spreading it to their communities, effectively aiding the war effort and starting an epidemic in the north. Pretty fucking evil. But in a way, it's also kind of evil genius. Blackburn's plan sounds like a plot from a James Bond movie, and consequently, the new James Bond movie does have smallpox in it. Blackburn smuggled five trunks and a suitcase of infected clothing and sheets from Bermuda to Nova Scotia. Himes was asked with smuggling the trunks into the city of Washington, and this is a quote, and as far north as he could go, where the federal government had possession and had the most troops. He was then told to auction off the trunks except for the suitcase, which was to be express delivered, if you can believe it, to the White House. The largest trunk was specifically to be sold in D.C. This is another quote by from Blackburn. It will kill them at 60 yards. End quote. So there's an absolute disregard for innocent northern civilian lives and those who don't want anything to do with the war. If you're a northerner, in Blackburn's eyes, you're a target. Which in a way kind of puts him in the terrorist category if he's not deliberately targeting Union military, which doesn't really seem to be the absolute focus of the plan. He seems to want to target everybody, civilians and military alike, which gives him a very terrorist-like mindset. Because if he was just fighting for the South, he would exclusively just send this stuff to the military. But he sees any Northerner as an enemy, and he also wants to take out the president. So now this guy is definitely the bad guy from a Bond film or any other action film that's been made in the last 30 years. You could put Blackburn in a Bond or a Die Hard film and he would fit right in. So this is where you really have to judge this guy's character carefully. Even if he was only attacking military targets, it wouldn't really make him any better. The whole plan is just pure evil from a man that has done so much good. So Himes ships the trunks to Boston, then Express delivered them to Philadelphia. To cover his tracks, he goes by the name of J.W. Harris. Once he arrived in D.C., he sells some of the trunks and clothes to a local merchant, who in turn auctioned them off the following day. It's kind of gross when you think about it, like just opening a you know, crusty old trunk with you know a bunch of clothes in them, which would have to smell pretty badly. The remaining clothes he gives to a civilian shopholder who was traveling to North Carolina, where the Union Army had control. So even this doesn't point to him being a you know a freedom fighter or a guerrilla fighter this is he's still targeting civilians and he's targeting civilians to get to the military which is what terrorists do this vendor had an arrangement to sell the clothing on commission after which himes returns to canada to collect his payment so the shopholder may or may not be in on it we don't really know too much about this guy if he was in it this is also pure evil 
if the vendor didn't know about it, there's a very good possibility he could become infected with yellow fever or whatever bacteria happened to be traveling in the trunk. We have to assume that the vendor probably didn't know what was going on. Otherwise, why would you be following the army around? There's a very good chance that they could catch on to what you were doing and just put a board in you. It seems like this guy is taking a hell of a lot of risk for not a lot of reward. And if he's working on a commission, that means this guy's only getting a part of the money he's earning for secondhand clothes, which at the time is probably, well, more than you would now, but probably not a lot at the end of the day. So I'd probably say that the vendor doesn't know what's going on. It makes you wonder how Himes and Blackburn didn't manage to infect themselves. I mean, obviously Blackburn had been around diseases a lot more than Himes, but Himes kind of sounds like a dumbass. You know, he doesn't even keep receipts from the sales. He has to send away for them to get them to send a receipt back. So there's obviously a paper trouble with this guy. It wouldn't be that hard to find out where he had been even back then. And this is with no technology assisting. Like the cops probably could have traced the receipts back to the merchants that he sold the clothes to. And if he doesn't keep the receipts and he's sending he's sending a request for a receipt to a vendor he's or a shop that he's sold to, he's not doing a very good job covering his tracks. So there's a lot about Himes that doesn't add up. Blackburn, I, I get. Uh, he kind of thinks he's helping in a very fucked up, perverted way. He uses his medical knowledge for bad, but he also helps with yellow fever outbreaks, where Himes is all about the money. All he cares about is getting paid. He did sell infected clothing to to vendors around northern states, so he knew exactly what he was doing, and he acted he acted solely on cash incentives. I mean, if you wanted to make the argument Blackburn is doing this for the good of the South, he's trying to aid in the Southern War effort, he's trying to help Southerners... Because, you know, they've been devastated by the northern blockades. A lot of medicines and stuff can't get into the south. Blackburn's using his skills to the best of his ability. Unfortunately, he's trying to do that by starting an epidemic in the northern states. So you've got one character who's motivated by money, and the other one is motivated by a perverted sense of southern pride and what's in the best interest of the south. He thinks he's helping by harming, in a way. To throw those who might question where the trunks came from off the scent, new clothes were mixed in with the infected in the hopes that the dirty would contaminate the clean. So the belief back then was that you could get yellow fever or become infected with it through contact such as a sick person's clothes or bedsheets, which is obviously the backbone of the plan. So yellow fever causes black vomit. This is due to hemorrhaging in the stomach. You're basically throwing up blood that has been sitting in the stomach, which is pretty you know, gross on its own. So it was this belief that if someone comes into contact with this vomit, it would spread and infect more people, which is gross. Those sheets would fucking stink. If they'd been exposed to black hemorrhaging vomit that had been shoved in a trunk with a bunch of other dirty and new clothes... You'd have to imagine the clothes would smell pretty bad. They're, you know, dirty, sweaty. I mean, if you had a yellow fever, you'd be sweating like an animal. You'd be sweating into the sheets all night, especially in Bermuda being hot as fuck and humid. You have disgusting, sick, sweat-stained sheets that have been shoved into a trunk that have gone across the ocean up to Canada where they've been sitting for months, if not a year. They haven't probably been opened. I don't think there'd be too many people opening them or having a smell of them. And then they've been locked up again, and they've been sent back down to northern cities in the hopes that they would get sold. 
that's pretty fucking gross. If I was a store owner or a merchant in Himes wanted to sell me a trunk full of black vomit exposed clothes, pretty sure I'd be telling him to get out of my shop. It's pretty gross and I yeah, it's it's hard to believe that a man as smart as Blackburn thought that this plan was one good and two that it was gonna work. So Hames meets Blackburn in December of 1863 at the Queen's Hotel in Toronto. The pair are introduced by Stuart Robertson, a Confederate agent. However, the plot thickens and the conspiracy grows. Himes claims that Blackburn had intentionally filled a suitcase with fine shirts that had been contaminated. He was meant to deliver them to President Lincoln at the White House. If anyone asked where the shirts were from, he was told to say they were from an anonymous fan. I mean, like, if anyone is going to fucking give a box of anonymous clothing to the president... I don't think the Secret Service was around back then, but there was probably many sets of hands this trunk had to pass through before it got to the president. For a guy like Blackburn, this plan seems really dumb. I'm trying to start an epidemic. It's a bold and evil plan, but you can kind of see it working. But to get to the president, that's the type of plan that could bring the entire operation into focus and put a unnecessary amount of attention on what Blackburn was doing. It seems like a very dumb plan from a very smart man who can be very selfless and sympathetic to the sick, but at the same time wants to create them. So whether this is 100% true or not is up for debate. There's a few things I don't buy. The clothes would stink. If they were near black vomit, the stench would go through the clothes, not to mention being locked in a box for weeks or months before going to market. Makes you wonder if any of the merchants sussed what was going on. Surely they would take one smell and ask some questions or wash them before selling. I mean, it's kind of gross to sell used clothes that are unwashed. Hames might be telling the truth, or his version of the truth. I've got a few questions about Hames. Why did he come forward now? Or at all? Something smells a little fishy to me. Hames claims he was to be paid between $60,000 and $100,000, which back then would have been a shitload of money. I mean, $100,000 back in the Civil War, that's a decent amount of money for any type of job. He was to be paid this sum once the job was done. Hames says he delivered the trunks of clothing to the merchants, but he didn't attempt to deliver the suitcase to the president. I wonder why. So whether this is out of fear of being killed in the process by guards, or even just making it to the White House, because you have to assume that if he just turned up with a suitcase with clothes from an anonymous fan... There would be some questions being asked. They would probably take his name. Even if it was an alias, that's still a trackable piece of information. He also might have hesitated because he might, might have thought he was going to be found out. Or maybe he just liked Abraham Lincoln. I guess we will never know. Having said that, Hames claims he was never paid the large amount that he was promised. He only got paid the normal hourly rate for espionage. I'm guessing this wasn't enough for Hames and that's probably why he chose to turn himself in. According to Hames's testimony he never received the nominal compensation for being a cunt so what is the normal pay for a double agent espionage potential epidemic spreading piece of shit to me this sends up a red flag he only reveals details of the plan to the authorities when he doesn't get paid properly what about the moral implications of his actions he could have potentially killed thousands of northern men innocent men women and children that's not to mention potentially some of his own Makes you wonder, if he got his money, would he have gone through with it? And if he was smarter and got more proof of the receipts to give to Blackburn, would this have been a different outcome? 
if money was his only motivator and he went to the extent of delivering five of the trunks already, this guy's obviously a piece of shit. Even though he does broker a deal for himself and turn himself in in the end, it doesn't change the fact that he transported and sold the clothes. He didn't have any moral implications about doing so. He went ahead and did it, and he could have potentially ended thousands of lives. Holmes and Blackburn meet up in Canada after the deed is done. Hames claims that Blackburn refused to pay him the promised sum due to his lack of proof that he had actually completed the job. And this is what I meant by him being a moron. He could have just been making anything up to tell Blackburn, and you know why would Blackburn have paid him the money? This guy sounds like a fucking idiot. It's also pretty scary to think about what if Blackburn had paid a competent, evil genius to do this job instead of Himes. It could have been a very different and deadly outcome. Blackburn, wanting more proof before handing over large sums of money to Himes, heads back to Bermuda to assist with another yellow fever outbreak. Himes wrote to the Washington merchant he'd sold the clothes to for a receipt of the transaction. While in Bermuda, Blackburn hatched his second plan to spread yellow fever. As it goes, two days after walking into the console and spilling the conspiratorial beans, Abraham Lincoln was dead. So Blackburn, he goes from philanthropist to bioterrorist in a few years. He has a very dramatic change in his character. It's such an extreme departure from being a healer to a harmer. It also makes you wonder about Blackburn's morality. Where is it? And he's pretty much violating the Hippocratic oath he took as a doctor. So enter our next devious character, the curious case of Mr. Swan and the second plot. So Blackburn travels back to Bermuda to lend his assistance with the second outbreak of yellow fever. So he pretty much repeats the exact same process, collecting the sheets and clothing from yellow fever patients to sell. Holmes has turned snitched, so Blackburn recruits a man named Edward C. Swan. Swan was instructed to hold three trunks of clothes and the following spring, he was then to ship the trunks to New York. Fortunately, things didn't go to plan and the cases never make it to New York. But ultimately, the plot failed because you can't spread yellow fever through particles on clothing. You can only contract yellow fever through a bite of an infected mosquito. If you could spread yellow fever through dirty clothes, it makes you wonder if this plan would have worked and the potential ramifications of it. For all his smarts, Blackburn never figured this out, and he also managed never to get bitten by a yellow fever-carrying mosquito in the process, despite the fact he worked in pretty much the hot zone in Bermuda. So the knowledge of germs wasn't what it is today, and it's pretty much for this reason alone that his plan fails. If he had this knowledge on how to spread yellow fever, I dare say he probably would have been importing jars or boxes full of infected mosquitoes. So not too long after, in 1865, the Lincoln assassination trials begin. Hames played a key role in the trial. He was brought to Washington to stand as a government witness. His testimony would implicate the Confederates in a plot slash a conspiracy against the late president. It's during the trial that Blackburn's second plot becomes unstuck, and the US consul in Bermuda is tipped off to Blackburn's plans. Edward Swan's house in Bermuda was searched, where the authorities found the trunks. Swan was arrested by Bermuda police, and the trunks were confiscated by the local health authorities. During the trial, Himes was questioned about the suitcase that was to be delivered to Lincoln. He was asked if Blackburn had told him if the case had been successfully sent to the president. Himes replies, and this is a quote, No, sir, but I have heard it was sent to him. End quote. So unfortunately, there are no further records that exist as to what might have happened to the mysterious 
suitcase or of the clothes destined for the president. Also makes you wonder, did they actually exist at all? Or was this really just a non-existent biological weapon, one that was designed to inflict fear? So basically a weapon of fear or you know, a fear weapon. If it was, then that is an absolutely genius biological weapon. Fear is you know, a biological response of pretty much any living creature. And who said it always has to be germs when it comes to bioweapons? Why can't you have a biological chemical like what causes fear or happiness or anger? Could you cause a biological occurring feeling or you know, the chemical signals that create fear or anger? Could that be classed as a biological weapon if that could be induced? Maybe that was the real biological weapon in all this, the non-existent case. Kind of like what was in the case in Pulp Fiction, you never really know. That could be a similar thing that's happening here. You never find out what happens at this case. There's no photos of it. There's only loose testimony from a couple of people that claim to have seen it or handled it. It doesn't really seem to exist past that. Not to say That's not saying that it doesn't exist. It's just hard to prove without some type of evidence. Or maybe the Secret Service or the powers that be were covering it up. Maybe they didn't want this plot getting out because maybe it would compromise the safety of future presidents or give would-be assassins ideas. So as the trial went on, evidence against Swan and Blackburn started to stack up. Swan was on trial in Bermuda. Health officials tell the courts that they found trunks full of clothing and bedding stained with black vomit. Yuck. You really hope the merchants uh, washed that stuff before they resold it. I'm sure I mean they did. So Blackburn is also reported to have been seen by nurses removing soiled sheets from yellow fever patients and putting them into trunks. US officials had enough evidence to move on Blackburn. The only issue was he was still in Canada. United States officials contacted Canadian authorities and urged them to arrest Blackburn. He was eventually arrested on May the 19th. 1865 and charged with conspiracy to commit murder. He was sent to Toronto for trial, and as it turns out, luck was on Blackburn's side. Under Canadian's British system of law, there wasn't enough evidence to charge him with conspiracy to commit murder. That can only be charged if the victim was a head of state. So Blackburn definitely dodges another bullet. Nothing ever seems to stick with him. He covers his tracks far too well and proves that he is pretty much a evil genius. So there wasn't enough evidence that Blackburn's target was such a person. He was only charged with a violation of neutrality, as Canada was neutral during the war. He was later acquitted of all charges on the grounds that there was just no evidence that the trunks were on Canadian soil or even in the country, which wouldn't breach Canadian neutrality. So John Wilkes Booth takes the focus off of Blackburn as the Lincoln trial goes on. U.S. officials lost interest in Blackburn. You know, also, maybe that was a cover-up. Maybe it was designed to keep the peace and throw people off of biological threats to northern states. Like today, maybe he just got lucky and he fell out of the news cycle. Or maybe you know, they, the officials thought that, well, the president's already dead, so why rock the boat even more? And also, in the end, there's just no evidence. There's no trunks. No worries, right? And this is also helped by the fact that he covered his tracks way too well. It's really hard to believe that that was the only charge against him. If it was today, he probably would have had a bioterrorism charge thrown at him or an evil genius charge. But even back then, it's hard to believe that he wasn't charged with endangering the public. I mean, you can go on and on and on of potential charges. Or maybe they were all just lost to time. Who really knows? So Blackburn was off the hook. He stayed in Canada before going to New Orleans late in 1867 to once again 
lend a helping hand with a yellow fever outbreak that was devastating the city. It was a pretty bad one. It took over 3,000 lives. From there, he moves back to his home state of Kentucky. He becomes a private practice doctor in 1873, before running for governor of Kentucky in 1878. While he was serving as governor, a few local newspapers asked him about his alleged involvement in the plot. He did the typical politician thing and pretty much kept his mouth shut. He only ever makes one comment on the yellow fever plot, and that was in 1879. This is a quote by him. It's too preposterous for intelligent gentlemen to believe, end quote. And maybe that was the real genius of it. He came up with a plan that was so evil and far-fetched and yet so basic that really anyone with half a brain wouldn't believe it. That could be a contributing factor of why the charges never stuck to him. So anyway, he wins the election. He only serves one term before dying about 10 years later at age 71. That wasn't the only case of biological warfare in the Civil War. It was pretty much everywhere. Southern newspapers of the day jumped on the bad wagon and made comments like, just wait till summer, referring to tropical diseases that could infect Union troops on the march down south. So it's not quite biological warfare, but it's early biological propaganda. Mother Nature also helped by adding her two cents. In April of 1862, Union and Confederate troops went head-to-head in pretty ferocious battles in, in Shiloh, Tennessee. Troops on both sides were cut down, not by each other's weapons, but by scurvy, typhoid, diarrhea, and fever, all signs of the dreaded malaria. This is a quote from the day. The pestential atmosphere of the country about Shiloh was producing an amount of sickness almost without parallel in the history of war. End quote. So a month later, Union General Sherman only had about half of his 10,000 troops available for battle because the rest of them were all sick. The same thing happens again at Vicksburg. The Union Army and Navy were too sick to successfully take an important strategic city. As the story goes, the mosquitoes were everywhere at the Union camp. This is a quote. They filled the air like raindrops. There wasn't enough mosquito nets to go around. So the men used to burn gunpowder and cartridges to keep the bloodsuckers at bay. As it turns out, the troops were too sick to work or patrol the area. Three quarters of them were either dead or sick, not too long after. So it's much the same for the Confederates. This is another quote. The command suffers greatly from intermittent fever and is generally debilitated from the long exposure and inaction of the trenches. End quote. Both sides were essentially doing the same thing. They were both using differing perspectives of biological warfare to inflict on one another. But that's not to say everyone in the South was bad or everyone in the North was bad. A lot more Southern physicians and doctors seem a lot more sympathetic than some of the mindsets of the Union leadership. A lot of Southern military doctors were sympathetic towards Union troops. They knew all too well diseases took no sides and it would affect everybody regardless of what uniform one was wearing. There was a southern surgeon named Francis Perra Porcher. While he was working in a naval hospital in Virginia, he could see the Union blockades in the harbour, which was a very painful reminder of the supply shortages. He needed medicine to treat the sick, especially the anti-malaria drug quinine, which was a miracle drug at the time. He was in his late 30s, around the time of the Civil War, and he had a lot of responsibility placed on his shoulders for such a young doctor. The wonder drug quinine was well known to treat symptoms of malaria, yellow fever, and many other nasty tropical diseases. 
The only downside, there was a shortage due to the blockade, which led to smuggling the drug into the south any way you could. This included hiding quinine in children's dolls, mainly in dolls' heads, the intestines of animals for sale, in the holes of blockade runners, obviously, and any other way you could. Overseas supplies were not reliable, and obviously who could blame them? With the war going on, with most of the ports being occupied at the time, depending on how you know, far-reaching the Union blockades were, makes you wonder, could the blockade runners have made it to South America where, where the trees that make quinine are grown? If they could make it that far, they might have been able to source or at least find some components needed to make it. The bark of the chinchona tree synthesized a alkaloid that was used to produce quinine. So it's hard to imagine nowadays a medicine shortage. I mean, COVID is really the first time since the war there has been a significant shortage of medical items such as drugs and consumer goods, which as it happens is still going on and it doesn't look like ending anytime soon. But things in the South back then were definitely dire. They were so dire for the need and demand of quinine, a southern daughter wrote to her mother begging for any quinine that was available, and this is a quote from her, I write now to beg you to send your next letter a quarter of an ounce of quinine. You know in this climate, life depends upon quinine. And though large quantities came in every ship, it is taken up so immediately for the army that it is, that it is exceedingly difficult for private individuals to produce it at a very high price, end quote. In a way, it's eerily and disturbingly similar to the crack epidemic of the 80s and the opioid dependency of today. You have a supply shortage and a over-dependence on demand. So in a way, you could even attribute the drug wars of the 80s and now as a biological weapon or a form of warfare in a way. Because you're creating a biological dependency in the people who are taking it. These people feel like they need it. They can't function without opioids or crack and a consequence of that is the mind starts to develop this dependency for the drug even though in reality it doesn't need it to survive it can't get any nutrients from it but it tells the person it's affecting they need it or they're going to die and that's where you get these withdrawals and shit from but it is a very interesting way to look at it in the south during the civil war this is definitely a form of biological warfare by denying and restricting the enemy's supply of quinine so the Union is helping the spread of a deadly disease, even though they're technically not the ones who released it or you know deliberately spread it in the South in the form of a weapon, like an infected patient zero or a you know, test tube or whatever. You get the point. So the Confederates hatched a plan to make their own quinine. In steps the hero of the story, General Samuel P. Moore, a Confederate surgeon. Moore at the time was about 50 years old and a pretty seasoned combat veteran of the Mexican War of 1846. He came up with a plan to produce quinine using the native plants found in the south. Southern troops were suffering in larger numbers every day and more needed vast quantities of quinine and there was no, no reliable source of it coming in from the outside world. A more sustainable and reliable supply of it was needed if his troops were to have any hope of countering Union advances. So he sends out the word to southern physicians everywhere asking them to search fields, forests and other areas to collect the natural fauna that could be used as substitutes for the South American ingredients. After they were found, they were sent to be processed. The biggest problem with this plan is how do you know which plants would be suitable and which others were just a waste of time. A lot of people just wouldn't be able to tell them apart. They couldn't tell the difference between one plant to another. 
And the bigger problem is you can't test them all, so you need some direction as to which plants might be helpful and which ones aren't. So helping with this pretty big problem, and as it turns out, it was a very, very difficult task, was Mr. Porcher, the surgeon from the Naval Hospital that first raised concern about the supply of quinine. As luck would have it, Porcher was a relative of Thomas Walter, 1740 to 1789. He was a British-born American botanist. He wrote the book on Southern Flora, the Flora Carolina. He also wrote a thesis at the age of 19 on botanical medicine, entitled A Medico-Botanical Catalogue of the Plants and Ferns of St. John's, Berkeley, South Carolina. He went one step further, graduating from the Medical College of the State of Carolina with a medical degree. From there, he travels and studies in France and Italy, founding a medical journal and then a prep school for medical students, becoming one of the staff of the medical college. So talk about a overachiever. He sounds like a very busy man. So Portia gets reassigned from hospital duties and is given the special mission of seeking plants suitable to make quinine. Moore had chosen wisely. Portia wasn't the only person wandering around the south looking for plants. There was others involved, obviously. They had a hell of a lot of people out there searching fields looking for plants. Porcher had the knowledge and experience with plants and what plants to look for. He also had two other invaluable sets of skills, one being his medical skill and the other analytical. Porcher also needed to sort, document and survey most, if not all, of the plants and trees in the south. They had to be assessed for their usefulness and their practical uses, and if they could be synthesized into quinine. It also helped that Porcher was fascinated with plants and how they could be used in medicine. This was a hobby of his and it was an area he knew a lot about. So Porcher definitely has the skills that made him the perfect man for the job. The one big thing Porcher in a way doesn't really know he's fighting is the knowledge of the time. He was looking for treatments for a disease that no one really knew how it spread. If they hadn't known it was spread by mosquitoes, you could control the populations of mosquitoes. And this is an excerpt from a scientific journal. A single Anopheles mosquito was born in a stagnant pool of water, emerged and joined millions of others following soldiers in camp and on the march during the warm 1862 summer. She dropped onto a soldier's neck and injected her proboscis into his flesh. Parasites transmitted from a previous meal from another soldier's infected blood entered the new victim's bloodstream. Yummy. Carrying parasites into the liver of the soldier during an incubation period of one to two weeks, the merozoites grew within the blood cells, causing sickness. As the parasites multiplied, they slowed the flow of blood and brought on fevers, profuse sweating, violent shivering, aches, nausea, and chills. Symptoms lasted for many hours and returned periodically, even daily. This is from the Scientific American Journal of the Day. There was two diseases going on at the time. There was yellow fever and malaria. Both are very similar, and there's a lot of misconception that malaria and yellow fever are one and the same. Both are carried by mosquitoes, but malaria isn't usually fatal. But it can still take out an entire army, and this is caused by the single-celled plasmodial parasites. Yellow fever, on the other hand, is a virus which is fatal, or can be fatal. It took 20 or so more years to figure out what caused it and why. In 1888, the scientific community finally caught up. So that excerpt was published about the same time as the war kicked off. It was published in Scientific American, 
The weird and mysterious thing about the article is that the author is unknown, which you'd think would be odd given that it's a scientific journal and everything is usually fact-checked, checked and rechecked before being signed off on and making it to print. Whoever it was knew a lot about malaria. They even go into the meaning of the word malaria, which means bad air. They knew a hell of a lot about the symptoms and theories on what might have been causing it, i.e. the microscopic organisms. They also make mention that these microscopic organisms might have originated in either animal or plant life. They also give a couple more theories, which in today's medical knowledge seem a bit far-fetched, but at the day probably made a lot of sense. Some other causes for malaria might have been gas from rotting vegetable matter. Atmospheric temperature is another one, and my personal favourite, a mysterious poison that floats around in the air. So no one saw the insect world as a threat back then. The most interesting information the article divulges is how to cure and prevent the symptoms, which is pretty interesting given the source of the information is anonymous. So how do they know what can potentially cure it? It is pretty strange. The author or authors also claim that there are substances that will cure or prevent it, one being the chinchinoa bark, which quinine is made from. So the biggest misconception with quinine is it's not so much a cure. It just prevents the symptoms from incapacitating the person that it's infecting. The chinchinoa bark has been known for centuries and has most likely been used by native populations for thousands of years, which in military terms means sick troops can now march, fight and be combat effective. And when you think about it affecting the army, nausea, vomiting and fever being some of the worst symptoms that malaria and yellow fever can can produce would also make an army pretty much ineffective. You can't march if you're or fight if you're nauseous or vomiting everywhere or if you're burning up with a fever. There is another cure a bit more dangerous and that is and that is arsenic. Arsenic could probably also cure pretty much every other virus and disease known to man because it effectively just kills the host outright. It skips steps one to three and goes straight to four. So this prevention was key to the supply chain issues that faced the South. It also pretty much kicked off the second micro war of the Civil War, the Quinine War. So in other words, it's the 1800s version of a drug war without the DEA interference. Both sides knew how valuable Quinine was and what it meant if the army supplies were threatened. The switched-on military leaders of the day saw to it that their troops were taking quinine as a preventative measure. However, that sounds good on paper, but like a lot of things back then and today, the reality was much more different. Troops didn't take quinine regularly, or regularly enough for it to work. They dosed themselves, or they made their own concoctions or versions of quinine, which could be as worse as the disease or much more dangerous. Soldiers would get the call to line up for quinine, which would mean that they would have to get out of the ration line and give up their whiskey-infused food rations for the day to take something that they didn't really want to. So you have to think about the mindset of the troops back then. They probably would not give two shits about this unless they had malaria or yellow fever. They probably thought it was a bunch of hocus-pocus and didn't mean shit. At the end of a long day's march or a week of fighting bloody battles in the heat, most of these guys would just want a decent meal and their whiskey rations. They don't want to hear about quinine, they just want whiskey, and they want the war to be over. So, we know what happened to the South and the blockades and the struggles they had to, to go through to secure their quinine supplies. The North, on the other hand, had it pretty easy. 
The North had access to far more resources and overseas supply networks, mainly coming from Europe. They even had drug agents that were kind of like a legalized drug dealer. The correct term is authorized medical supplier that acquired raw materials for the use in medicine on the behalf of the government, army, or whatever institution was in power. These agents could procure and collect raw ingredients, and they would also distribute raw ingredients or the final product to where it was needed. In other words, they're a government-authorized drug dealer, and chemists all roll, rolled into one pretty much. To make sure the quality of the drugs were up to standard, Union Surgeon General William Hammond started the United States Army Laboratory to do just that. It made sure the drugs produced were safe and met a certain standard of purity before they were taken by the troops on the, on the battlefield. Hammond was a pretty ambitious young general, and it seems like a pretty simple task opening a, a lab to make quinine for the troops, but it can't be overlooked just how important opening a new lab was. This new lab wasn't just producing drugs for the military and for, the, and for civilians. It's pretty much setting the benchmark for pharmaceutical standards. And these standards hadn't changed much since the 1812 war. And the military at the time were not equipped to deal with the demands of modern warfare and a changing world. So this task went to General Hammond. Hammond overhauled the entire field. He reinforced his belief in the changing world of the military and medicine with doctors who shared his views. This also helped keep up the demand the war had put on the system. There were two plants opened, one for the testing of raw materials and the second plant to distribute to Union military units. The first one was in New York and the other was in Philadelphia. So the pressure was on, the factories needed to pump out enough quinine to keep up with the army's demand. The lab in Philly had to be shared with other companies who were making civilian clothes and goods. So they had to work alongside and with other industries. And these factories, obviously space was limited. You know, they had big factories that were shared by several companies. They all had equipment. Machinery was powered by steam engines, which took up a lot of space. You have storage containers full of raw materials in all these different fields. They all needed to, needed to be stored somewhere, not to mention the other stuff found in a factory. It also gave the Union its distinctive edge over the South, is it had access to modern technology and steam-powered machinery. The North could industrialize the production of medical supplies, where the South, though they had factories, didn't have the access to the resources or machinery needed to pump out the volume that the North could. These factories were more than likely busy at all hours of the day and it wasn't that uncommon to see soldiers, women and girls coming and going all day long. So to get the place up and running and to keep production on track, a man by the name of John Michael Meisch was given the task. He was born in Germany where he enlisted in the army. Now, Meisch is a bit of a wild card. While he was serving in the army, he got himself into a bit of trouble. He was sent to prison for revolutionary speech during, as it turns out, the Revolution of 1848. From there, he breaks out of jail and heads to the U.S. a year later. He arrives in the United States, broke, and pretty much lost in a new country. So what does Marsh do? He studies pharmacy under Edward Parrish, a professor of pharmacology at the School of Practical Pharmacy. He eventually becomes the chair of therapeutic medicine at New York City College of Pharmacy. So the lab leased a portion of its workspace from a company called Powers & Waitman. It was one of the only pharmaceutical companies producing quinine at the time of the Civil War. 
and was one of the major pharmaceutical manufacturers in the United States. This is most likely where Maish appears on the radar. The demand of production needs a man like Maish to keep things on track, and Hammond needed Maisha to keep the lab running at peak performance. Because as it turns out, the North had over 30 medical depots scattered around the place that needed a constant supply of medical goods for the war effort down south. So the North had a pretty ready supply of quinine on hand. The North didn't have to go searching through forests to find suitable plants, compared to the South who were smuggling it in however they could, and searching for suitable plants. So Maish gets a job with Powers and Waitman, along with a couple of other companies, to keep up the supply of quinine, so there was enough on hand when needed. So in other words, the North had a comfortable and steady supply of quinine, as opposed to the South. So what made Maish's operations so successful is that one of the companies who was producing quinine hired the guy that discovered it. He was a French pharmacist, I believe, and not too much else is known about the guy. So they were producing many other popular consumer drugs of the day, such as opium. The company was smart. They brought bulk quantities of the chinchoa bark and other raw materials to produce quinine. So Misha was also a very fastidious man. He was obsessed with details and oversaw pretty much every aspect of the manufacturing and distribution process. He oversaw packaging, labeling, as well as coming up with the standard dose. He also oversaw drug purity and production. And this was also at a time where there was a lot of pointless drugs floating around that didn't really work. There was no standardized testing or oversight. A company could produce snake oil pills and market them for sale without having any type of testing done on them. A majority of them didn't work and were just complete bullshit. Much like a lot of the cures for baldness, why don't guys just do this when they're losing their hair? Well, they don't do it because it doesn't work. They're selling hope for $300 a month, and this is kind of a similar thing. So this standardized testing revolutionized the drug industry in the United States. By the end of the war, 160 different drugs were produced under Maish's watchful eye. He even claims to have saved the government millions of dollars in the process and run the government's first regulated drug manufacturing institution. I'm not too sure there's many people in history that like to boast about saving the government money. In other words, Maisha is a government drug manufacturer and dealer. But it wasn't always sunshine and unicorns. The lab was attacked by mobs several times because they saw it as a conflict of interest. It was private business competing against local jobs, the age-old causer of drama. In the end, the opposite was actually true. Maisha's business created a lot of local jobs because it was so big and it expanded. There was lots of moving parts to the manufacturing process, which meant lots of jobs. So... We have this conflict in between a conflict. You have the North versus the South on the battlefield, and you have the North versus the South on the drug production front. The North has quinine, the South needs quinine. The South is making their own substitute for quinine, where the North is stockpiling it and has a plentiful and ready supply. So this brings us back to Portia. So Portia, on the other hand, didn't have things so easy, or the endless supplies of raw materials available to him. It's 1863 and Porcher releases his long-awaited book slash field manual on the medical plants found in the south, titled Resources of the Southern Fields and Forests, Medical, Economical and Agricultural, being also a medical botany of the Confederate States, with practical information on the useful properties of the trees, plants and shrubs. Oh my fucking god, that is a gigantic title. That's longer than my shows. 
the wait was over, the book was finally finished, and it was a 600-page encyclopedia containing over 3,500 different plant and tree types, with information on the use, where to find them, as well as their Latin names. I'm not sure that would probably apply to the common person that much, and you probably could have saved a bit of paper. It also had instructions for soldiers and their commanders in the field to collect and dry plants, as well as where to send them for processing. He used patriotic language to drive the point home and the importance of collecting plants for medical use. And this is a little quote from that book. These bounteous providence has vouchsafed to a confederacy of states, starting forth upon their career under new and happier auspices, and with independence and self-reliance forced upon them by an almost sacred necessity. Probably could have worded that a bit differently, maybe in a more easier to understand format might have helped drive that point home a little bit more. So the most impressive thing about the book is he had it written in a year, which is pretty impressive given that it's 600 pages complete with illustrations and descriptions. He had to consult pretty much every library that contained books or specialized in medicine, chemistry or botany. He also recruited his wife and mother and a well-respected professor of chemistry, Joseph Laconti, to help complete the project as soon as possible. His wife and mother acted as research assistants, and as it turned out, he was right. The plants proved to be uh, invaluable to southern doctors, civilians and troops alike, not only during the war, but also after. This meant that the south didn't have to rely on imports from not only the north, but from overseas. They could substitute these ingredients with stuff they could find in their own backyards. But there was still one big problem. How do you synthesize quinine from plants? And did any of the plants actually work in the end? So as I mentioned before, the biggest disadvantage to the South was the lack of machinery available. They just didn't have enough machines or factories to produce quinine on a large scale. The South's factories weren't as big as the North's and just couldn't store or manufacture as much. The bark of several trees could be substituted for the bark of the chinchoa tree and used to make quinine. A couple of the tree types were tulip tree bark, yellow poplar bark, holly, boniset, hazel adler, black adler, dogwood or knockgrass. Dogwood in particular was a pretty easy one to find and administer and Porcher thought it would also make a pretty good substitute for the chinchoa bark. Dogwood being the most similar substitute. So how did they synthesize quinine and in what form did it take? Porcher's idea was to turn it into a tea, more or less. You would take some of the dried bark of the dogwood tree, whether it be shavings or ground into a powder, you would mix that into a pint of hot water, and presto, you have a substitute for quinine. This is a quote by Porcher. It was quite sufficient in the management of many of the malarial fevers that will prevail among our troops during the summer. Porcher had one other gigantic problem, and it was probably the biggest test that Porcher faced, was testing the dried plants in the field. So unlike the north, they had a pretty strict testing phase before any of the drugs were given to the troops. The Misha set up a pretty standardized testing of product before it ever left the factory. He literally set the standard. He, he set the bar for a standardized drug testing, 
Portra in the south didn't have the access to the labs, so a lot of the a lot of the testing Portra had to do was field testing. So it was pretty much impossible to conduct any type of field testing in the south. Portra had to go on pretty much word of mouth or even rely on old folk traditions and folk remedies as to what may or may not work. So the different provinces he would have been in would all would have had their own different variation of what might help produce fever or nausea or whatever it is, which he would have had to take into consideration while coming up with a eventual cure for malaria or yellow fever. He also didn't have the luxury of a sophisticated lab setup like Misha had. So General Moore, he waits patiently for Porch's book. So when it finally comes out, he made sure doctors and medical staff all got a copy of it. He also added his own recommendations based on Porch's results, such as adding whiskey to dogwood, willow or whatever bark you were using as a substitute for quinine, mainly quinine tea. So Moore wants this book produced. He's waited patiently for it. It's finally released and he's kind of, not kind of contradicting, but he's kind of muddying the waters. He's creating a degree of confusion when the book comes out. So rather than just test Porch's remedies first, he's kind of adding his own on top of that, which is just making everything really fucking confusing for everybody. And it ultimately led to what was to come. The book goes on a bit of a PR campaign. Local newspapers get on board and they start publishing excerpts from the book to get civilians out there looking for plants. Not only for the military but also so civilians can make their own substitute for quinine everybody needed it everybody wanted it and now they had the option to go find plants that could substitute it so it kind of goes without saying that this was a complete and utter failure a lot of southern doctors disregarded portia and moore's advice they saw plant-based medicines as dubious thinking that it appealed to those who didn't want to use chemicals or process medicines so the doctors have their own agenda. They are not believing that this new proto-hippie bullshit will work. They're sticking with the tried and tested powdered chemicals and remedies and stuff like that. They are disagreeing with Porcher and Moore's hard work. And this guy was out there for years picking plants and assessing their suitability. Then he goes and writes a book, releases it, only to have it shot down by the medical professionals which he is also one of, and so is more. So ultimately, the, these doctors end up spreading misinformation and distrust in Poacher's plant-based medicines. Does this sound familiar? Well, it should. This is pretty much the exact reverse of what's happening with COVID vaccines and the debate about what's in them and their side effects. But in this case, it's the doctors spreading misinformation and not Facebook and the media and the armchair doctors and scientists out there. This is the medical industry spreading misinformation about these new remedies. So in the end, none of Porch's plant remedies worked. The South suffered through the rest of the war, relying on whatever quinine supplies they could get through smuggling or plundering from northern supplies. The North had plenty of quinine, and Union troops fared much better than Confederate forces when it came to dealing with and recovering from tropical diseases. Porcher's book, however, is still in use today. It's more so valued for its botany advice and not so much as medical. There was one upside for the North and the South. The Civil War proved to be a valuable proving ground for medicines which worked and those that didn't. It also paved the way for 
the future of medicine and disease control in warfare, which in a way is biological warfare in complete reverse. Vaccines in the modern military owe a lot to the trial and error of the Civil War. So does the modern medical pharmaceutical industry and the production and supply of medicines and vaccines. And probably the most important legacy of the Civil War, it started the industrialization of the medical industry. And that brings us to the end of the show and the end of part two. On the next episode, we'll be continuing our look at biological warfare. We'll be having a look at the use of biological weapons in the 1900s, namely two very big and obvious events, and that being World War I and World War II. I don't think there's a better example of industrialized biological warfare than World War I and II. We'll also look at the Korean War, Vietnam, and all going all the way down through modern history. And as it's shaping up, this is probably going to be a four-part series on bioweapons and not three. The research is getting pretty heavy and it's getting quite big and quite long. So definitely keep an eye out for parts three and four of biological warfare. All right. Thank you to everyone who listened. If you want to support the show, there's a couple of things you can do. Hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Tell friends and family about the show or anyone else you think that might like it. Rate and review the show. Leave a five-star review if you feel so inclined. It helps the show grow and get found. You can also support the Truth Tank by following and liking the Facebook page. I appreciate all the support and all the downloads. A big thank you to everyone who listened. Stay safe. And as always, I'm the tank. This is the truth. May the truth be with you. and running.